we can grab a seat. It's time now for our beloved holiday tradition. Hey, Jimmy Kimmel, I told my kids I ate all their Halloween candy. Last night, I ate all your candy. Why? Because it was good. You ruined my life! Yeah, we ate it all while you were sleeping. Oh man, I'm gonna eat it all. I'm gonna eat it all. J- Jimmy Kimmel said I should eat all your candy. Okay? Okay, I'm gonna eat it all. Yeah, I'm gonna eat it. Okay, this is for me. Well, let's see. Jimmy Kimmel said I should eat this too. Okay. Okay. Are you mad? Those aren't real drawers, buddy. Get out. We ate all the candy. Uh, uh, We'll get some more next time. The whole entire bag? Yeah, I'm sorry. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine? Like, there's none left. It's fine. Oh, thank you. I ate all your candy. That's okay. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> I know the feels. True. Front row. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man, it's tragically hilarious. It's tragically hilarious uh, as it is to see those ch- children implode and fall in on themselves and lash out and open all the drawers, even the fake ones in the kitchen. Uh, there's something about seeing this forgiveness, right? There's something that brings almost even more joy, a greater joy in seeing a kid just immediately forgive in the moment of thinking of their Halloween candy has been eaten. Why? Why do we feel for that? Why are we drawn to that? Why is that an incredible moment? It's because that we are hardwired as people to need resolution. It's because we love to see closure. We love to see mending of relationships, right? That's what we're all about. We want to see in our stories, in our tales, we want to see the couple get together at the end. Right? We want them to die in that hospital bed in their sleep together. Right? We want to see that moment. We want to see the superheroes vanquish the bad guys. Right? We want to see uh, Thor, Captain America, whoever it is. We want to see them rise up, defeat the bad guys, send them off. And, and this weekend, we want to see Katniss just murder everyone. Right? <laughs> we want that resolution. We want that closure. We want to see it come to a sweet, tied up end. We are hardwired to need resolution in our lives and in our relationships. And yet how many of us are dreading the upcoming holidays? How many of us are not looking forward to Thanksgiving because there's a certain unresolved issue between two family members? Because you know, you know that drama is going to come out. Maybe you're in the midst of it. How many of us have those things with our family members? How many of us have to make sure that as we're hanging out this week or this weekend, we have to make sure that those two friends aren't in the same place at the same time because they have some sort of unresolved problem between the two of them and things would get really, really awkward. How many of us are still furious at our roommate for something that they did two months ago? 
two weeks ago. How many of us are here this morning even thinking about that conflict that we're in the middle of, right, with our friend or with our boyfriend, girlfriend, who maybe is sitting like two down from us, and we're just thinking and we're looking at them a little bit out of the corner of our eye. Don't look too clearly because they're going to know because of this moment that we're having. But you're thinking, right? Like, oh man, when we walk out to the parking lot, oh, it is so on, right? Like you're just ready. You're just like gearing up. Man, you're in the midst of this conflict and there's something within us that knows that that's wrong. There's something within us that wants to have this moment, right? We want to have our bare pajamas on and telling our mom that's okay to eat our candy. We want to have that moment. We want to have that closure. Our conflicts, they need closure, Our relationships, they need resolution. That's what we crave and desire. And all semester, man, all semester we've been talking through the Song of Songs in an attempt to understand what is God's design for relationships? How do relationships function? And we've discovered over the course of this semester that relationships function a lot like a song. In the same way that a song has both a melody and a message. In other words, a song has that tune that you listen to, but there's always a message or something bigger behind that melody. And in the same way, our relationships have a melody, a way that they play out, the way that people perceive it, but there's a message behind that. There's something bigger that we're pointing to in the midst of our relationships. And so we've been trying to discern and discover all semester, how do we as believers not just pursue great relationships or good relationships or healthy relationships, we're trying to discover how do we pursue godly relationships that sing his song, that present his message? How does the melody of our relationships present his message of his gospel? How do we do that? And so we've seen in all of these different aspects of relationships, we, we've seen how we can reflect God, we can reflect the gospel in the way that we are attracted to one another. We can reflect the Lord in our pursuit of one another, in the commitment that we begin to form in our relationships. We can pr- reflect the gospel. We can reflect the gospel even in the way that we have sex, in the way that we use our sexuality. Last week, we looked at how do we reflect the Lord? How do we reflect the gospel in our conflict? that is inevitably going to appear in any relationship? How do we reflect the gospel through conflict? How do we fight? But this morning, we're moving to the very next chapter, immediately after the fight, and we're looking at how do we not only fight, how do we forgive? How do we find resolution? How do we find closure? How do we reflect God in the midst of that moment? in that aspect of our relationship. I mean, if you've heard some of these talks, or if there's maybe a topic that you still have questions about or that you really want to have your boyfriend listen to, uh, you should know that one of the easiest ways to access all of our material that we've been going through is through our app, right? As presented here on a beach, because that's where apps are the most <laughs> wonderful. That's where you want to read that church bulletin. So, You go to the beach, you download our app, and it's the easiest way, really, honestly, to see uh, our small groups, to see our events, uh, to know what's going on, to sign up for things, uh, and also to hear our sermons. This is the easiest place to find it. Great resources. We put our notes up there, PowerPoints, everything that we have, we put up on there. And so I would encourage you, if there's anything that you want to go back, listen to, recommend to a friend, use that. Uh, But this morning, like I said, we are talking about resolution. We're talking about closure. Because the reality is that every healthy conflict needs a healthy resolution. We don't need to just know how to fight. We've got to know how do we forgive. And so we look in Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to be there all, all morning. 
So if you want to find a Bible or grab a Bible from nearby, uh, you can use it. Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 1. The chorus, okay, the, the women of Jerusalem, the girls, the daughters of Jerusalem are speaking to the woman and they say, where has your beloved gone? Oh, most beautiful among women. Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? They're speaking to the woman and it's obvious that we are clearly right after a fight. Right, we, we are in the aftermath of a conflict. And now this could either be a continuation of the previous conflict uh, in a narrative form, right? This could be literally the exact same couple going forward and, and finding resolution and closure in the midst of that conflict. Or this could just be the aftermath uh, falling from that conflict uh, thematically, right? This could just be another uh, song that's been accumulated, that's been drawn together. Uh, I would argue that this one that we're going to be unpacking this morning is, is actually by Solomon. Um, we'll get to that at the very, very end of the chapter. Uh, but either way, either way, whether it's narrative connection or thematic connection, this is definitely connected to the conflict in our lives, to the conflict that has just occurred in this relationship. And so that's why these women, they turn to the main girl and they say, hey, where did he go? Right? That's what they're saying. They're saying, where, where's he gone? That's a great question. Because the reality is that when we are faced with conflict, when we're seeking to bring about the end of that conflict, when we're seeking resolution, we go somewhere, right? We, we run to something. Some of us, uh, we try to just run away, right? Some of us, we just try, we just quit the relationship. In other words, some of us, when that conflict arises, we think, okay, the way that I'm going to really uh, end this is I'm just going to never see him or her ever again, right? And sometimes that's great. Sometimes uh, we rationally decide that, you know, it is not, I don't like this person enough to work through these issues, right? And that's great. That's why we date, right? That's why you date someone so that you can see things pop up. And if that one thing pops up that you're like, whoa, well, I don't like hockey that much, you know, then you can go, you can leave. That's great. That's what dating exists for, right? And in marriage, not so much, but even you're dating, that's what it's for. It pops up and you say, okay, I'm gone. But the reality is that other times, sometimes we quit a relationship and we run away because we irrationally, irrationally decide that any issue in that relationship must mean that that relationship is doomed. And any issue means that God is pulling me out of that relationship because he has a perfect, no conflict relationship awaiting me somewhere in my future. And that is not great. That is not correct. We talked about this early in the semester. There is always going to be conflict. And what's crazy about that direction that we run, what's crazy about that mentality is that it's not found in our scripture. It's not found in history. Whenever God directed his people, he generally did not mysteriously tug at their emotions. Or we've had that friend or we've been that person to have, be looking across the table at mug walls with that other person. And they tell us, they're like, I just, God, God's leading me away, right? God has given me, and he hasn't given me peace. So I feel I must go. Don't cry. It's God. You know, like they, and you can't argue. You're like, okay, well, I guess God said. But when you look in history, you look in our scripture, I mean, that's not the way he operates. When he pushes people and, and moves people and directs people, he doesn't tug at their emotions. He tells them things, right? He's very clear with the circumstances. He's very clear, uh, sometimes even verbally. Moses didn't look at Pharaoh and be like, oh, I just don't have a peace about the way you're treating the Israelites, right? 
I feel like maybe I should do, I don't know. I don't know. Right? Like he doesn't say it. He doesn't do that. I'm going to go pray about it for a semester and talk to my roommates. Like he doesn't do that. He listens to the Lord. The Lord tells him, I need you to go do this. And Moses is like, okay, cool. Right? He didn't even want to. It was against his emotions. But he goes and he does it. God doesn't just tug at our heartstrings to move us. The reality is that, I mean, you're going to have people in your life. You're going to date someone. You're going to marry, more than likely marry someone. And that person is going to have issues. And that person is going to have problems. And you're going to have conflict arise. You're going to have to fight, hunt foxes with someone. Right? Those foxes are out there. Don't forget ever, right? Don't ever forget this image. Burn this into your brain forever. These foxes, man, they're out there. They're out there. And you're going to hunt them with someone. So it doesn't work. Our conflict doesn't work if we just try to run away. If we just end any relationship where there's conflict, that doesn't work. Some of us, though, we don't try to just run away. Some of us, we try to just run past it. In other words, we try to just pretend it never happened. We just try to rush past it as quickly as possible. So the conflict arises, and we're like, okay, I acknowledge that this is happening, but let's just resolve it, right? Let's just get closure as quickly as possible, because we don't want to deal with that conflict. We don't want to sit and really mess with it. And the problem with that is that when we just rush past the conflict, we never learn. We never grow or change. We don't allow that conflict to bring forth change in our hearts and in our minds and in our relationship. Uh, My wife... Uh, Susan and I, uh, we moved into a, a house a few months ago, uh, a new house with different appliances and all this crazy stuff. And uh, as we were discovering our kitchen and learning the, the ins and outs of the things and the appliances and stuff, Susan uh, realized that we uh, were putting our silverware into the dishwasher in a way that she didn't really like. Okay, it had the option where you could put them in in individual little slots. She's like, I don't like that. And she brought that up and she mentioned that because I thought it was really cool. I was like, oh my gosh, it's like a little sleeve for every single fork. And I was so excited. But she was like, I don't, I don't like that. But it came up and I was like, well, that, I don't know. Like, what, why? And then we didn't really do anything about it. We were just like, okay, well, whatever. And we just moved on, right? Because she didn't want to push it because she was like, it's just silver. It's the dishwasher, right? Like, I don't want to push. I don't want to make this a thing. So we just rushed past it. And we're like, okay, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So that was like six months ago. Fast forward to yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and we're in our kitchen and we're having a conversation about things and stuff is arising and foxes are making themselves known these dang dirty foxes and as we are discussing these issues and bringing up this stuff at one point uh, we're dealing with the dishwasher and she looks at the basket with the forks in the individual pockets she goes I don't like this I don't want our silverware like this in the dishwasher. <laughs> I said, oh my gosh, well, let's not do it. I just took, I just threw it in us. I just, I said, okay, fine. And I flipped up the baskets and we just, and we just put them in like normal people now. And it's fine. And they're all mixed up and that's fine. That's fine. But it's one of those things, man, where that popped up. Why? Because when it originally arose, we were like, ah, oh, let's not deal with this. Let's just kind of move on. Until eventually, right, m- months later, we found ourselves in a moment when we're already kind of a little bit uh, on the edge. We're already a little bit in a dispute. And then that pops up again because we didn't deal with it. And boom, it just explodes. It explodes. Because if we don't deal with it, if we just run 
past the conflict, we never learn, we never grow, we never change. You've got to deal with it in the moment. But sometimes we don't just run away. Sometimes we don't just try to run past it. Sometimes we run completely around that person and we go to someone else. Where we have that conflict with our roommate, right, or our girlfriend, or our boyfriend. And we have that conflict and, and we just put up a front, right? We're like, oh, hey, you know, it's fine. Like, we're very peaceful and we're so loving and kind and gracious. Like, oh, no, 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 it's great. Like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And then we immediately run to that other roommate or to that other friend and we just unload. We just dump. We run to that friend or that family member and we just vent everything to that person partially to get them on our side, partially just kind of, you know, help us like kind of cool off. And that doesn't work, right? The problem, if we're, if we're doing that, if we're running around the person we're in conflict with to just unload and seek kind of our own personal mental resolution with someone else is, is that we are setting up that first person for failure. You're setting up your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you're setting up your spouse for failure, if you are not confronting the issue with them, because you're still focused on the issue, but you're not telling them that. You're still hung up on this thing, this problem or this conflict, but you won't tell them. So of course they're going to fail again. Of course you're going to run into that same problem. Of course you're going to butt heads on that same issue because you're dealing with it with someone else. That doesn't make any sense. A lot of times that's the way that we use our accountability with a guy you know, or, or with another girl. You have that accountability. And I've seen so many times where that just turns into just people sitting down and be like, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe what Stacy did this week. And they just get it out. And it's in the interest, the interest of trying to, you know, bring healing to that moment. And sure, there's definitely a need for some venting, right? There's sometimes a need for some uh, iron sharpening iron. But that cannot be the way that you reach resolution. That cannot be the way that you bring closure that conflict because that's just selfish that's just your own personal i feel better but you didn't talk about it with your boyfriend with your girlfriend with your spouse with your roommate if you run around the person you're setting them up for failure but some of us we don't necessarily run away or run past it or run around them some of us we run to revenge right this is one of our favorites this is one of the ones that popped up the most when i was having conversations and and asking people about kind of what, how they dealt, what they did. Some of us, we just decide we've got to get even, right? We've got to bring balance to the force, right? That's what we need to do. We feel like the only resolution is found as balancing those scales to bring justice to the world. Because we're all Batman and we know what's right. And we know that we've got to bring something that evens it out. Right? We need both sides to be on equal footing. This has been so perfectly illustrated in one of my favorite stories that I ever heard as a history major at Texas A&M University. Whoop. Oscar, wait, what was it called? <laughs> Osceola. I also called it Oscaloosa, but I don't know what that is. Osceola. Osceola, Missouri. Or Missouri, if that's where you're from. Oscaloa, Missouri is a city. 
And this city exists, and it is pretty close to Kansas. Okay, Kansas is near Missouri. And uh, as they were founding Osceola, and they're having a grand old time, uh, they found in right around 1861 that they were having issues with people from Kansas because they were divided, right? There was a civil war that started up that year. And so in the midst of a civil war, uh, you go and you ransack other towns. That's what civil wars are for. And so you go, and so these Kansas guys, and they called themselves the Jayhawkers. The Jayhawkers would go to Missouri. Specifically, they went to Osceola, and they just trashed the place. Just ransacked the town, took all that stuff, burned stuff down. Horrible thing. Okay, 1861, big atrocity, big drama. Oh my gosh. Fast forward to 2011. <laughs> 150 years later, okay, 150 years later, Osceola, Missouri is now a thriving metropolis of about 900 people. And they decide (laughs) that their size is due to the fact that those stinking Jayhawkers came and ransacked them in 1861. And so in 2011, Osceola, Missouri passed an official resolution that told Kansas or specifically KU, told them to stop using the Jayhawk as their mascot because it represented uh, something that killed people. Okay, so that was their official resolution. KU needs to stop doing the Jayhawk, that little bird that wears big shoes and all that stuff. They say, you stop it. He's a domestic terrorist. That is literally what they said. They called him a domestic terrorist. And so KU responds, state university, so really the state as a whole is responding, and they say, well, you know, bears and tigers have also killed people, which I'm assuming are mascots in Missouri. I don't know why. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Sports people. Okay. So that's good. So bears and tigers are things in Missouri. And so Kansas, KU says, well, they killed people too. And so it's unfair. And we didn't call them domestic terrorists. So it's unfair to make us stop using the Jayhawk. And what's beautiful, beautiful about this moment is that Osceola put in a special follow-up resolution. So if it was rejected by Kansas, By law, there was a follow-up resolution that popped up in the midst of that original resolution that said, that commanded Kansas, the state of Kansas and the university KU to stop spelling their names with a capital K because, I quote, neither is a proper name or a proper place. Oh, grammar burn, right? Oh, (laughs) got him, right? And so all of a sudden, Osceola, Missouri, 150 years later, still trying to just bring justice, right? Trying to bring something to bring an evenness, a balance to the situation. And the reality is that when they do this, when they dredge up this issue from 1861, what are they doing? They're causing more conflict and their attempt to find their own special revenge flavored resolution. They are causing more conflict. They are bringing more pain, more fighting. It doesn't work. Anytime we seek to bring our own justice, anytime we seek to bring our own evening, our own balance, it never works. It never works. We talked about this last week to some extent, where the other person, I mean, you're just going to bring more hurt and more pain if you try to go in and make it right. But we still try. Why? 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 Why do we do it? 
Because there's something inside of us that knows that there needs to be justice. There's something inside of us that knows that brokenness, sinfulness, disconnection, conflict, there's something inside of us that knows all of those things is wrong. So we want to fix it. But it's not our job. It's not our place. And that's what's so beautiful when we look at the response to conflict that we see in Song of Songs. When these women, they're asking the main woman, they say, where is your beloved? Where did he go? Where did he run? Did he run away? Did he run past this? Did he run to revenge? Where did he go? She responds. She tells him, well, you know, my beloved, he's gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, to gather lilies. She says, I'm my beloved's. My beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. She's speaking poetically, describing this man, not necessarily in an actual garden, but he's gone to what, what is the garden? What, is, what has always been called the garden throughout this book? The relationship. Sometimes even her specifically. This garden that he's gone to, he's bringing spices, he's grazing, he's gathering lilies. In other words, he's being kind and gracious, he's bringing beauty. All of these words, all these themes, all these beautiful poetic devices that we've seen all book are being brought to the forefront. And she says, I know that he's doing these things. I trust in these things. Why? Because I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. She is confident that he is handling the conflict well. She's confident that he is seeking good resolution. Why? Because she is confident in their commitment to one another. This is something we're going to hammer in on, focus in on next week to wrap up the whole series. We're talking about what does commitment really look like? How does that play out? I'll tell you. This is a beautiful picture of commitment done well. When you're in the midst of conflict, when you're trying to find that person, you're trying to seek resolution. And even in the midst of that unknown, even in the midst of that confusion and that sadness and that pain, even in the midst of that moment, you are confident in the commitment you've made with that person to the point where you say that I am his and he is mine. So I know him. I trust him. I'm confident in the commitment we've made to one another. And sure enough, that's where he is. Sure enough, he begins speaking and he's speaking directly to the woman. And he tells her, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. He opens up with one of the strangest analogies of the entire book and tells her, that you are like a city. No, two cities. No, two cities and an army. What in the world is he talking about? No longer is she that beautiful dove that's flittering around her or the does or what. She's a city. Why? What is he communicating? He's telling her, he's, he's trying to communicate, trying again to put into words his feelings. And he's telling her, you are so great. He says, you are so magnificent. He's describing the two biggest, most impressive cities that Israel had. He says, you are so wonderful. My respect for you. You're you're like an army. He's displaying this. He's demonstrating or describing this power that she has. Like a city, this big city, this other big city, like an army. He's saying, I don't just love you. I don't just think of you as this like, oh, little bird in the rock. He's saying, I am. 
am in awe of you and I respect you. I fear you. The healthy, like respectful fear. Right? It's something we don't use a lot. Right? We don't often walk up, girl, you're so good. You're scary. Right? Like we don't say that. <laughs> but it's good. that is a good thing. This is an amazing, this is a perfect illustration. This is a great analogy where he's saying, you are so great. I am in awe of who you are. He's affirming her. He is being so positive, overwhelmingly positive. Something we've seen through this entire book whether it's been the same guy or a bunch of different guys, throughout this entire book, we have seen such positivity, such affirmation in every single circumstance. And resolution, seeking resolution, seeking closure is no different. He's being positive. He's he's forgiving her and, and building on praises. See, sometimes we forgive, right? Sometimes we're like, oh, that's okay. But then deep down, we still kind of hold on to something, right? We still hold it against them just like a little bit. We think just like a little bit less of that person. This is so dangerous, especially in marriage, where you forgive the person, you bring resolution, but, but you just think they're a little bit less awesome, just a little less beautiful, a little less kind, a little less godly, a little less holy, and your respect for them dips just a little bit. But when that happens over and over, and that adds and accumulates, your relationship can be destroyed because you find yourself, you look back after five years of those little increases and you realize, I don't respect this person at all. And so in the midst of that moment, rather than giving in and just thinking a little bit less of her, he builds on the praises. He heaps on the affirmation. He heaps on the positivity. He says, I am in awe of who you are. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love does not hold into account a record of wrongs. It does not hold into account these wrongs that we've, been, that we've suffered. We address the issue in the moment, right? We don't just run past the conflict. We address it in the moment. But when we address it and we bring resolution and we bring closure, we don't just bring it up later. We don't allow it to sit and fester. We don't allow it to just be this one little thing that we think just a little bit less of. And we don't let that happen because that's death and that's poison. Don't let that happen. Instead, when you see the issue and you confront the issue, you respond, you bring closure and resolution by then heaping on the praise and saying, yeah, I recognize, I'm not just ignoring what just happened, but in light of what happened, I realize that you're so much better. You're so great. These are the things I'm thankful for and who you are and what you've done. Affirm the person, be positive. We also see that he's also incredibly selfless, right? When he's speaking to her, he says, I need you to turn away your eyes from me for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. He's telling her, I need you to look away from me. Why? Because they are overwhelming him. If we looked back a couple chapters, we would see a very similar thing. We would see them on their wedding night and he was describing in chapter four, your eyes, they bring about actual excitement. They they excite me on a physical level. I love, I'm drawn into your eyes. And so right here he's saying, I need you to turn your eyes away. Why? Because I'm getting excited, I'm getting overwhelmed. Why does he say that? Why is he pushing away her gaze? It's because he's being sincere. It's because he's being selfless. It's because he's telling her, look, I don't want you to think that I'm forgiving you for sex. One pastor 
Uh, Tom Nelson has got a great series on this exact book. Great, huge resource that I've used for the last couple talks. Tom Nelson sums it up, this moment, by saying that there is not a price tag on his forgiveness. That's beautiful. There's no price tag on his forgiveness. He's not trying to manipulate her. Sometimes we try to forgive and move on and bring resolution, but it's because we secretly want X or Y or Z. We want this thing to happen. And so we're going to give in on this moment so that we can get on this other moment. He's not doing that. He's saying, no, there's no price tag. I'm selflessly, I'm sincerely forgiving. I'm not holding it against you. I'm not leveraging this to get something else. Turn your eyes away. Because God calls me to minister to you selflessly, not manipulate you secretly. He keeps going with the animal stuff, as he likes to do. And he says, your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. What the heck is he talking about? He speaks of these animal illustrations. He's talking about how beautiful she is, putting it into words that they would both understand, looking at the world around them to illustrate his points. He says, you're so amazing. You're so beautiful. Where have we seen this language before? The lead up to their marriage. Again, whether this is the exact same guy, different guy using similar wording, we've seen this language before in the lead up to their marriage. He's going back either in time or either in theme and he's describing, you are as beautiful as the day we got married. Cheeks still like pomegranates. And this is one of the passages where some people say this means, it's talking about Solomon when he's got all these queens and concubines. Could be. Uh, I think there's stronger evidence later in the chapter. Uh, the other side would say, no, like this is just a guy speaking, right, poetically, granted a very strange poem of saying, look, there are all these other women and there's so many of them, 60 queens, 80 concubines, bajillions of virgins. But you know what? You're the one. Ultimately, he's saying you are the one. You're cut above the rest. He's describing her as a lily among thorns. This one pure woman, this one that he chose, this one that he's committed to, this one that he's going to find resolution with. Because that's the way it works. He says, I want to find closure in the midst of this conflict. And sure enough, they do. And we see the chorus and they're speaking to the couple and they say, return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? They're saying, we want to see the Shulamite. What in the world is Shulamite? Shulamite, most likely, again, scholars fall in different areas, but I think the most convincing argument, Shulamite is is basically uh, the female version of Solomon's name. In Hebrew, Solomon is actually Shulam. And so they are speaking to her, calling her the Shulamite. Basically calling her, you know, the girl version of Solomon. They are reconciled to such a point that's like they share a name. Like, even though you know my wife's name is Susan, you would see us walking down Research Park together, kicking ducks. And... (laughs) 
I don't know why. Um, and you would say, oh, because you'd see me kick the duck, and you'd be like, oh, well, yeah, Jacob does that. And then you would see Susan just like punt a duck, and you'd be like, oh, wow, they're the one, right? They're, they're like the same person. You would say, oh, it's Jacob and Jacobina. What a beautiful moment. We are so, together, we are so one that we are go by the same name. It's either saying it's Solomon and the Solomonina. It's Shulam and Shulamite. They are, compl- they are reconciled. Because that's what reconciliation is, right? Reconciliation uh, is the idea that you are brought back to your original relationship. You're back to the way things were originally, the way they're supposed to be. You're not just friendly with one another. You are reconciled. Tom Nelson gave a great story illustration saying that the, his example would be if you see two cars or you're driving down the road and your buddy, your roommate bumps into you in his car, right? Backs into you on the driveway. You get out and you can be friendly and forgive him, right? You can say like, oh, don't worry about it, Jimmy. Uh, it's okay. But uh, look, I don't really want to see you for like a couple weeks and I'm going to eat all your Cheerios. So like you could be friendly-ish, right? But you're not, it's not the same, right? You say, I think you should move to Brian or like away. Like I need you, you need to go away. And you can reckon, or, or again, you can, you can be friendly. You can forgive them, but you're not the same. As opposed to if you reconcile, you walk into that moment, he bumps into your car and you say, Jimmy, that's okay. I forgive you and I love you. And let's go get dinner. And I want to buy your meal. And that's why we have insurance. Don't worry about it. You know, like that's, that's the moment where you reconcile, you bring it back to the original. And that's what we're seeing in this relationship is that their resolution, their closure is not just them kind of forgiving, but secretly holding it back. It's not them forgiving, but then running to a friend and telling them about it. It's not forgiving and then saying like, well, but I'm going to get back at you later. It's not them forgiving and then saying, well, I'm going to use this to, to get what I want at another point in time. It's them forgiving and reconciling. It's them being so confident in their commitment to one another that they are willing to handle the conflict and then forgive. They're willing to fight, but they're willing to forgive, to reconcile, to get back to a moment where they're Shulam and Shulamite. And suddenly when people look at their relationship, it's not that they're just like, oh, they reconciled, but that is attractive. Right? The people around them say, oh my gosh, come back. Like we, want, we want to see this. Like we want to be a part of this. This is an amazing picture. This is something we want to know and be a part of and see and experience and have in our own lives. And what's so beautiful about this idea of reconciliation and resolution, what's so beautiful about this is that what, this is what we have in Jesus Christ. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a Christian. If you put your name or your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a Christian. We are reconciled to the point where we share a name. Because Jesus Christ did not step out of heaven and onto earth just to kind of make things okay, just to kind of forgive us and then be like, but don't do it again. Like there's no manipulation involved. There's no workaround. There's no future leveraging. Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again to reconcile us to God. To bring our relationship to a point where we are now adopted sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. Where we are now brothers and sisters in Christ to the point where we are known as Christians. 
We often think, man, as we're trying to run away or as we're trying to run past or we're trying to run to revenge, as we are making those mistakes, oftentimes we just assume that that's how God acts and that's how God operates. But don't ever believe that lie. Don't ever think that our inability to reconcile is ever a reflection of God's ability. The truth is that God has reconciled every single believer. The truth is that God wants and desires to reconcile every non-believer. If you're here and you have not been reconciled to God, if there's something holding you back, I would beg you to think about that and to talk to someone about that. Talk to your friend who brought you. Come and talk to me about this. As we worship, man, as we sing a few more songs, there are going to be people in the back of this room that will be praying for you. We'll be praying for the relationships in your life. We'll be praying that you will be seeking healthy resolution in your relationships. They'll be praying that you'll be seeking reconciliation with one another. So that through that reconciliation, we can reflect the gospel. So that through the melody, that melody of our relationship, we can reflect the message of God's gospel. We're going to be praying that for you. But please, if you have questions, if you have specific prayer requests, come and talk to us. We want to serve you and help you and pray for you and talk to you and answer your questions. We want to set up coffee with you outside of Sunday. We want to connect with you. So give us a chance. Because you can seek reconciliation with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, and your parents, and your brother, and your sister all day. And that's great. But if you're not reconciled, God, through Jesus Christ, all those other relationships, I promise, are going to fall apart because you can't do it on your own. And second of all, ultimately, those relationships are going to end unless you have found life, eternal life, through Jesus Christ. So let's pray. God, we, we thank you for the reconciliation that we can find, not by working for it, God, or, or doing the right stuff for it, God, we, we thank you that we find that reconciliation only by faith. I mean, if you would, take a moment and just ask the Lord to show you where, where do you need reconciliation? Whether it's with a person or with God himself, ask him to, to give you a name or a face right now. Ask him that. If you would take a moment right now and ask the Lord to show you what, what steps could be taken to find that reconciliation. Ask him to show you where, how can that conflict be resolved in a healthy way? Where could you be more affirming or where could you be uh, letting go of the past wrongs? Ask the Lord to show you where, how can you move to that reconciliation, that relationship that's restored, reconciled. Ask him that now.